Hello and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. I'm Priyanka and we're in conversation with Julie Copeland. Julie is the CEO of Arbel. Arbel has been in the PPE business for over 75 years. So that's almost 74 years longer and when PPE has become part of our normal lexicon. Now that we're at the one-year anniversary of global lockdowns, I sit with Julie to chat about what was the exact moment last year they realized that the demand for PPE was going to be through the roof because of a new virus that was taking over the world and how they reacted to the situation. We also talk about how things have changed in the last year with regards to PPE requirements and demand. If you've ever wondered, like I have, what kind of face mask is required for what kind of situation or how industries are going to adapt to the new normal uh, in the new world, listen on. Hi, Julie. Can we maybe start off with a little bit of an introduction of what Arbel does? Hi, Pri. I'm happy to. Arbel is in the business of protecting people. Our foundation is in protecting people in industry. That's where we sort of learned how to be great at what we do, industry in which can be quite dangerous and need a great partner to ensure that they are driving the safest workplaces that they possibly can have. And from that foundation, we grew into the government sector where we protect federal, state, and local, and most recently um, a pivot into the consumer marketplace. The way in which we partner with our clients to create this great protection or this great safety outlook is we provide PPE, which is now a household name. Um, we've been doing that for over 75 years. We also provide safety programs, which is products with a service, uh, things like prescriptive eyewear or safety boots, so on and so forth. And we provide environmental health and safety consulting services Oftentimes with multi-location facilities, they look for a partner where they know that there's going to be a standard training and compliance effort across all those locations. And although big corporations, of course, have big EH&S teams, they lean on us to supplement their efforts because it's very difficult for one person to have the expertise in many areas. And we have a wide variety of environmental health and safety talent that we provide our clients. And lastly, we have a safety technology. And so all of that gets wrapped up in what we call our safety care approach. Sort of like healthcare keeps you healthy, safety care keeps you safe. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, that's you know a whole bunch of things, and really uh, looking at the whole spectrum uh, of health and safety for a lot of these industries. Uh, I was looking a little bit, and I saw that Arbel decided to develop uh, a face covering as well. Um, why was that, and why is it different? Why was that? Well, back in April, we're all scratching our heads, saying, "Why does this keep getting?" worse. Why can't we properly protect people? And my team came together um, with the recognition that we have this mission and our mission is to make sure that people get home safely every day. And as it relates to our clients to that point, we were achieving that beautifully, working together with our clients to help come up with the safest protocols for their workplaces. But now, civilians weren't getting home safely. And 
the products that were in the marketplace were so inferior. And even if you could get your hands on an N95, which is an actual NIOSH compliant respiratory product, you need to do fit testing to ensure that that product's actually going to provide you the kind of protection that it's intended to provide. And that's just not possible <laughs> in the environment that we were in. And so we took our developing experience, which we've been making PPE for over 50 years, and we sat around and said, what are we protecting against? We got the information around what we're protecting against. And when we think about making PPE, we think about a few factors, and this is just general for us and what it's always been for us. First is, what are we protecting against? And then we have to test for it because I can't very well create any kind of PPE that I don't know meets a certain standard or threshold that I'm seeking. So that's first. And for this, it was all about filtration, right? We had to filter out the problem. The next in our experience is you can protect all day long. And certainly we create products all day long that protect. But if it is not comfortable, the user will not wear it. I could give you duct tape. We could filter out this problem and you can't breathe. So that's <laughs> not going to solve the problem, right? So the key, the next key piece is matching up comfort. In this case, it's breathability right? You've got to be able to breathe as well as filter out the problem. And then the last piece, sort of the three cornerstones, and then there's a fourth adder. The three cornerstones is that you want to make a product with the right usability so that you can hit the right price points. We're used to sharp buyers. They went to school to be procurement people. So I can't just build perfection and not consider it being cost appropriate. And in our case, we wanted to create a product that could be reused because the last factor for us is we need to be sensitive to the environment. And so we created a product that has the right filtration, has great breathability. It gives you 50 washes, nothing on the market's offering anything like that. Wow. And lastly, because you can get 50 washings, you get a wonderful per use price point and ours decomposes in five months and all of the polypropylene products out on the market today N95s, civil mass, surgical mass, they take over 400 years to decompose, a true environmental problem. And they're intended for a one use application. In most cases, you can't, you can't wash it. And there are some systems in which you can heat it to eradicate what's on it. But a civilian doesn't have a tool like that. So we're left with our good old fashioned washing machine to resolve <laughs> the cleanliness. And you cannot clean polypropylene products like that in your own washing machine. They're intended for a one-time use. And so that's why we set out to create this product that civilians could be protected in at the right price, comfortably, with a wonderful item for our environment. That is amazing. Let's do a little bit, little bit of a flashback then, shall we? So we're nearing the one-year anniversary of the global lockdowns, almost to the date, actually. Since you've been in the PPE business uh, for decades now, I want you to describe that exact day 
or moment or incident last year when it clicked for you for the first time that PPE demand was going to be through the roof because of this new virus that was taking over the world? By the end of March, we knew we were facing really challenging times. There were so many factors that told us this is really going to be a problem. And then it just cemented it for us in April. So I'll share just a few things that were happening. For starters, everyone was calling us. Of course, not just our customers, but anyone and everyone. For the first time in my career, we actually had to put on our website that at this time we can't accept new accounts. We needed to make sure that we could quarantine and protect product for our existing customers because we thought the worst thing we could do is bring our customers to its knees. So we needed to ensure that we could get continuity of product. We immediately worked with our factories to determine what's our full capacity making sure that we were getting as much as we could moving along as fast as we could with also this idea that this was a worldwide problem and we knew that our factories were equally at risk even though they weren't in china um, we also were immediately putting in our own ppe protocol into the factories to ensure we were warding off this potential problem and causing us to have some kind of slowdown. Wow. The other piece was the volume. Yeah, it was really just a lot to think about every day. You know, certainly when the country got shut down, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania immediately by the, I think it was on the 13th, we were already rendered essential. Some of the other things I knew, I mean, there were police coming by our bill early on weekly, making sure we were okay, that our employees were able to get there and that if there was anything they could do to help us. I mean, I really thought I must be living in the twilight zone. Um, a few weeks beyond that, nitrile and N95s were starting to get wrapped in black shrink wrap. Uh, and I realize now that I'm holding, I'm holding the gold <laughs> and how bizarre the world had become that what once was just normal clear shrink wrap was now black and we were protecting it to try and get it from where it ultimately needed to go, and in some cases, right into New York, because we held the New York contract to some federal agencies and making sure that the product was getting to where it needed to go because the desperation was so great. And the last piece that we knew we were really in crisis was the amount of imposters getting in and the amount of calls we were taking to make to vet out what was real and what wasn't real clients calling us, telling us they found something, would we vet it out for them and heading down a empty alley with some of these things and how difficult all of that was um, to really find that there was so much fraud going on so quickly. Um, but for us, we knew where we needed to go, how, what we needed to do to build more capacity. And I also leaned into an organization called YPO. I'm part of the manufacturing group. And because so many manufacturers came to their knees, both with YPO as well as NAM, the National Association of Manufacturers, I leaned into both to see how we could help support them in scaling PPE. And because we knew how items were made and what they needed to test against, we sort of acted like consultants to many factories to help them make the right products and convert their plants to producing what we needed. And of course they helped us and they were able to help the larger community as a whole 
we weren't the procurer of everything, but we really helped in sort of a consulting capacity to help these factories come online, making the right kinds of PPE to meet standards and testing. And so all in all, it really felt, you know, March through June, we were in the twilight zone. We were doing things we had never done before, seeing things we had never seen before. And inclusive of Jared Kushner's group that he had put together, um, finding ourselves on phone calls, trying to understand what was happening in terms of gaining access to PPE and recognizing the lack of knowledge that people had in achieving those goals. And unfortunately, they weren't pulling in experts quickly enough that could help them. Everyone seemed to think they knew better. And so we did our part wherever we could to bring the kind of expertise that were needed to just help the U.S. in any way we could. Wow. It's just incredible to think how much amazing uh, work has happened because of people like you, companies like you. Back in March to June of last year, I was just doing Zoom quizzes and making Dalgona coffee and uh, as was the rest of the world. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's stuff like this that really kept the world going. So that's fantastic. Thank you very much. I am curious to know how things have changed since then. So, you know, you obviously mentioned a bunch of initial challenges uh, for our bill back then. Uh, what were some others, maybe any additional ones that you want to mention versus what are the challenges now? Well, the challenges then for us, as well as anyone else at that time, this is sort of business problems was, you know, March 13th, we left the office and getting everyone set up at home in an environment where our phones were ringing 24 seven. So it wasn't like we had a break and time to set up. We were in this critical mentality so getting all of our employees set up in their home, making sure they had the proper bandwidth, Wi-Fi or what have you, connections, getting our phone system, which works in a hunt group, you know, rotating through for answering, making sure that that worked in a remote setting. You know, it's used to being a corporate in um, a room that's properly protected and the lines are just going out to a call floor. And now you're going out to many homes across the Delaware Valley area for us. So that was um, a big lift. Our team did an incredible job. And we also were so used to being together when we talked to each other. So we migrated to teams immediately. And I applaud my company tremendously for the rapid adoption to it and the absolute positive outlook to embracing this new way of connecting. We all had to get used to calling one another, like as if you would walk into someone's room, you just sort of picked up the call and then learning to see each other and getting the camera set up correctly. And we really pushed hard right from the get-go to see each other to try and create this connection. The other thing was setting up some protocols early on. So we as a company have a huddle every morning for about, at the time it was 15 minutes, but we quickly moved from 15 to 30 minutes to an hour those first months. I think we didn't back off of an hour till the summertime. There was so much happening for us. So the entire operational team had to come together each morning for an hour, go over whatever happened the day before. Nobody had time to read emails or follow up on chat. So we used that hour to reconcile and people knew that I'm just going to hold it for tomorrow. Everyone built their lists out for the day. They tackled the day the best they could. And then we get on the phone on the next morning and figure out what was happening and what we needed to do. And so that connection 
I didn't realize it at the time, but slowly it was building an incredible culture of unity and we were working so hard. People were putting in a phenomenal amount of hours and having that morning connection. The first five minutes, we would just giggle with each other of what time we went to bed and what time we got up at and what was happening to really accomplish the broader goals of protecting as many people as we possibly could. Um, but looking where I'm at today compared to where we were then, a beautiful culture and a sense of values was manifesting each and every week as we built this bond of togetherness, of working really hard, of accomplishing a goal, and nobody was taking vacations. It was beautiful out and everyone was staying on point to try and help and protect and do what we could. It wasn't until late fall, early winter of 2020, where there were some really getting burnt out and we were pushing people out for like, just take a day, just go rest. <laughs> you know, we were working all weekends and now finally a year later, people are putting legitimate weeks on their vacation, on their schedules, taking a vacation, taking a break from this marathon um, that they lived through. And from my perspective, there's enormous gratitude. I didn't ask anybody not to take a break. Everyone wanted to lean in and do the bigger thing for everyone. They felt there was a calling for us to do everything we could to help and protect. It was really absolutely magnificent. And I am so incredibly proud of what we did as an organization and my team as a whole. That is just amazing. Kudos uh, to you and uh, the entire team. This is really what uh, pulled through, uh, you know, a lot of industries, a lot of people uh, through the madness uh, that was happening. And to actually talk to someone that's been responsible uh, for the safety of so many people um, is just incredible for me, especially one year in. Um, so thank you. Now, I remember actually, you know, back in at some point, maybe September or something of last year, once we had settled in, you know, into everything that was happening with the lockdowns and all the different travel restrictions and requirements that we had, I tried to buy an N95 mask for the first time. And I actually had no way of knowing which was good quality and which wasn't. And I know you touched upon this earlier of how you have as a mask for that reason, which really would have helped if I'd known uh, back then. <laughs> but how does one navigate the world of potential counterfeiting, and, but also strike the balance between what is enough for a particular job and what might be overkill and therefore not necessary? Yeah, the N95 landscape. So unfortunately, there are incredible amounts of counterfeits out on the market today. I think the news has done a very good job of trying to spotlight that. And I think manufacturers like 3M and Honeywell are trying to do their part in identifying them as well, um, which I applaud them for because it would be awful for someone to think that they are being properly protected and they're not. Um, an N95 has to go through a testing process to ensure that it is meeting certain filtration credentials. And you also need it to be fit tested to ensure that it actually is giving you the right fit. Without the right fit, it's not protecting you at all. Things will seep through gaps. So you have that piece. Those that should be wearing N95s are those that are in the heart or of um, where the virus can spread easily. That is certainly for our hospital workers, 
emergency workers, essential workers that are in crowded spaces. And I think hospitals have done a remarkable job of getting the fit testing done. And I think states are doing a great job to ensure that N95s are getting there. As a manufacturer of N95, there is a process in which you have to go through to ensure that the right product is built into it to create the filtration that you need. When KN95s came out, we looked at about a dozen of them, and none of them had the right manufacturing ingredients to ensure that it was providing the right filtration. So we wouldn't touch KN95s at all, mostly because we thought at some point we could figure out how, because it's an easier way to make it because the machine isn't as involved as it is for an N95, doing it as a foldable mask. But the KN95, because there were so many counterfeits out there, we were deeply concerned that our customers would get the wrong product. Not that we would provide it to them, but it would open their mind up to feeling a sense of security that we weren't willing to attach our brand to. So we did not source, make, go down the KN95 route at all. We only make N95s and we only provide 3M and Honeywell N95s at the moment. So the issue was the time, and it still exists today, unfortunately, that if you don't have the right layers in the mask, you are, you could be protected. I'm not saying it's, it's certainly not nothing, right? But it is not the level of an N95 with the proper fit testing level of protection. Okay. For that, I think it makes KN95s extremely confusing. We hold a state contract and we were working with them to get them the N95s. They were being approached by people, new players into the marketplace who had never known PPE previously with KN95s. And the state had said yes. When the product arrived, just a few months later, they learned that in fact, this is not a proper KN95 and what to do with it. So the product can provide some level of protection because it's better than having nothing on your face whatsoever but you cannot consider it to be the NIOSH level of protection. And that was the story everywhere. So I'm not even gonna share what state it was, it's irrelevant. What is relevant is that so many states that were trying to do good and protect their citizens were being met with this kind of situation. And although maybe some entrepreneurs were trying to do good and you know use their smarts to source but unfortunately, the whole supply chain was so fractured and so many new players getting in and adding more layers to what once was a pretty vertically integrated supply chain, one in which was getting very complicated and many who wanted a piece of it along the way. The altruism was not there for many, um, and that was very disappointing to see. And we would often get on our huddle calls in the morning and share another story and, and some days it would cause, let's say, a great disappointment on our part to see such shattering measures being done. Um, but I guess in any kind of crisis, it takes all kinds of people. And it just forced us forward to continue to do everything we could to do right. And it 
further cemented why we weren't touching KN95s. The market was just too obliterated and it wasn't a space that we could be in safely knowing that we could properly protect any end user. So we stayed down the path of N95s. And I want to stress to those that are listening, if you are living an everyday life of running to the grocery store um, and doing the simple things that we're doing today, you, you do not need to be wearing an N95. That is an over level of protection right now. You're not near people. Even if you go to a grocery store, you're keeping your distance. So it's not necessary. The N95 becomes necessary when you cannot create space among fellow employees, crowded environment like a hospital. Um, that is where N95s are necessary. They're necessary on factory floors where they've always been needed. So many right. of those in industry have always needed N95s and they still need them today in order to keep their plants open. They needed to filter out whatever it is that they're trying to protect against. Those people still need N95s. So those of us civilians doing common things each day, a face covering is really all that is necessary to ensure that you're properly protected. Um, let's talk about uh, PPE then. Um, can you maybe quantify how the demand for PPE has changed uh, from pre-COVID times uh, to now. Um, and also because it's been a year, is it something that's still uh, going up? Has the demand slowed down a little bit? You know, which are the industries, um, uh, which industries have become higher doctors uh, or users of it where they may not have been? And um, just how has this landscape changed and shifted from pre-COVID to now? Well, for starters, you have many new industries who are in need of PPE that they weren't in need of before. You have the hospitality and retail and restaurants that didn't have these needs previously. So just the sheer demand. And then of course, we're pushing out the vaccine now, and that's a whole nother added level of demand in the marketplace. But what I see going forward is you've always had those wearing NIOSH respiratory product in industry and now you need to add face coverings. And that will likely be something employers will provide forevermore for a few reasons. If you are on a line and you are closer to other people, you might want to wear a face covering going forward. There's always gonna be that compulsive user who wants the added protection even after the vaccines have all been delivered. So. Employers have to think through as well as certainly, you know, in the hospitality industry beyond just industry is this idea that the non-NIOSH wearing employees will now need to have some level of face covering. Now, some may not want it. We certainly hear that, um, but there'll be others that will want it and they'll especially want it during flu seasons. If we all recognize the fact that there was very little flu this year, because when we were out, we were covering ourselves and I suspect also that when we enter crowded spaces like public transportation of any kind or theaters or concerts, we might all want to wear face coverings again to protect ourselves so that we can stay healthier. The glove wearing is continuing. It's another level of protection um, that we're seeing growth in. And then you have sanitizer volume. I don't think it will be anything like 2020, but I don't think it will return to 2019 volumes. And I am reading that from the CEO of Purell. 
they too feel that there will be added volume from 2019. I think as a nation, we're in a bigger habit of making sure we're washing our hands more frequently and of course using sanitizer. And overall, I think there's now a general sensitivity to PPE overall, that people want and are being more thoughtful about how do I properly protect myself? I do not think it will be as crazy as the middle of COVID, but I certainly think there is some new demands for PPE as we go forward in our new tomorrows. I'm curious, what else um, have you seen change as a result of the pandemic? Um, and uh, therefore, what are the changes that you think are here to stay? So I cited some of them already, but I'm going to add the following that is emerging. This you haven't seen yet, but the U.S. has not come forward yet in a real public way with new standards. They're working on it now. OSHA is pulling this together. They're taking their time. They want to do it right. But it is mid-March of 2021. And I don't think we'll see something much before the end of April from OSHA. That will help everyone become more aware of what's the right protection and what's not. Certainly for employers, it will do that. The other piece is, is that we haven't had any guidance until recently for face coverings. This is a very important piece that I want to mention. When we set out to make our face covering, we knew of the Eurofins AFNOR test that's in Europe that tests for breathability and filtration. The U.S. didn't have a standard and didn't have a mechanism for testing. So the U.S. has been left blind. What is proper protection and what isn't? I talked a lot early on about this breathability and filtration, but I failed to mention that we have not had a standard here in the US. So we use the AFNOR test. And finally, now the US has the ASTM standard that has been launched. I think our consumers will become much more aware of what's good for them and what's not. Sort of similar to food, right? There's become a great awareness around food. How do we grow it? What is being put on it to help it grow? what is being provided to the animals. I think there is a lot more awareness around healthy eating and what's proper, what's not, what's been tested, what hasn't. I think the same sort of outlook will apply to face coverings, that a piece of fabric with two strings on it is not the same as a product that has been tested for proper filtration. There is good, better, best here. And in some cases, the good isn't even good. I certainly realize that anything on your face is better than nothing, but there are many products out there. And I know there's been a lot of talk about gators. The issue with gators is the material is so thin, the filtration qualities are so low that you're barely protected. And that is the case for many masks. So I do think one of the big changes will be the educational component. And I think once the ASTM comes out more fully, the media will pick up on this and help to educate. And then, of course, providers will start to educate the consumer at the point of sale. Right. Wow. That's so interesting. Finally, then, uh, what is the biggest takeaway for you as a company 
uh, from this pandemic? Um, the biggest takeaway for us is that we needed to do more, that we do a great job protecting industry and government, and we needed to use that foundation to help protect civilians. And you will see more coming from Arbil, um, getting us out into the consumer space so that we can play a part in protecting everyone and so that we can do things to be together once again. In fact, we have launched our consumer facing brand called Together. And we have a new website, Get Safe Together, where you can get some of the products that can provide proper protection. And you'll see that line of products continue to grow as we dig in to PPE in general and how the consumer and civilian marketplace is being protected. We like to play a part in getting them properly protected long-term. Wonderful. That's just incredible learning. And uh, what an experience, right, for you guys too as a company to be in a space that um, is, or at least was technically something that was somewhat bog standard, almost boring, if I may, from the point of view of someone that's, um, you know, just a civilian and not really involved in these things uh, to then go through such a crucial journey through the pandemic that the whole world's been experiencing and to kind of just, you know, pivot and uh, really like show through and help uh, so many industries and people get through it. Just incredible. Uh, and I had such a good time chatting with you and learning about how things unfolded from your perspective and from your uh, point of view. Thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with me, Julie. Thank you so much. And what's so fun is if you asked me what I did a year ago, I wouldn't have led with PPE. Now the world knows what the acronym PPE stands for. So it's amazing to think uh, the difference of just one year. I'm very grateful for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking with you and thank you for the opportunity for me to share the Arbel story. Wonderful, thank you so much, Julie. Much appreciated. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contactus at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible. This is us signing off from The Vaccine Challenge.